The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Well, you're all very welcome along um, this afternoon. Uh, There's a great turnout today. Uh, which is is great to see uh, and is, I think, testimony to the wonderful speaker we have with us this afternoon, uh, live from New York City, uh, uh, Professor Sarah Covington, who I will introduce shortly. Um, first of all, as I said, you're all very welcome to the uh, uh, History Department's uh, seminar series in Early Modern um, History in association with the Trinity Long Room Hub. And I thanks to Joel and Quiva who are helping with the webinar today. Um, and our speaker today, as um, you're all very aware, is Professor Sarah Covington, who is the director of the uh, Irish Studies Programme at Queen's College, City University of New York. Uh, she's also the director of the Biography and Memoir MA program at their Graduate Centre. She also directs an oral history project for Irish Studies, which involved interviewing uh, 300 or so people, Ireland, Irish-born immigrants in Queens and New York City area, focusing on the elderly, working class and local artists. Uh, and in her spare time, well, actually, she doesn't have any spare time, but the sound of that, she's absolutely flat out. Uh, and I know she's working on a monograph at the moment uh, on Cromwell and his legacy as well. So um, very busy indeed. Um, but the lecture today uh, for our seminar, um, she will be discussing, uh, I think from Cromwell himself, uh, she'll be discussing a few Cromwellians, key people such as uh, Ireton, Coote, Axtell, Ludlow and Broghill, focusing on the literature, social memory, folklore and popular uh, memorializations that accrued around them and touching on what they had to say or not about their own deeds. So as always, uh, the talk will be somewhere in the region of 35 to 40 minutes, which hopefully will leave us plenty of time uh, for questions at the end. So uh, as you're listening to the talk, uh, and as we move then into the questions afterwards, if you'd like to post your questions on the Q&A, uh, and we will be keeping an eye on them here, and we'll hopefully get through as many of those questions as we can um, in the time left to us. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome Professor Covington uh, to our seminar series, and I'll hand over to her now for her talk. So thank you very much, Sarah. Well, um, thank you, Michal, and uh, thank you, Patrick, for inviting me in the Early Modern Seminar, and, and uh, it's, it's a real honor to be here. I, I actually blame uh, Michal for me losing 11 years of my life because his, I met him uh, when I was on a fellowship in Aberdeen, and he was finishing his great book on Cromwell, and uh, and, and then shortly after Guy Biner's book came out. So I thought, oh, well, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll write about Cromwell's memory in, in uh, the Three Kingdoms, Four Nations, and it'll be easy and it'll take two years. And I realized very quickly that Ireland is a completely different story when it comes to the memory of Cromwell. And, and uh, it was going to take me a, long, a, a lot longer than I realized, so. Um, that said, I, I want to just um, talk about the Cromwellians, even though I'm a little tired of the question of memory at this point, um, but 
uh, I was taking a, a private tour through Canis's cathedral and uh, excuse my dog, but I, I was taking a private tour through Canis's cathedral in Kilkenny back in the early 2010s when <clears throat> the guide turned to me and said sotto voce under his breath, I'm sure you know Daniel Axtell. I came to hear this a few times during my first visit there, usually a variation of, oh, Axtell, he was a bad man, a very bad man. I'd been aware of Axtell as a regicide and a Cromwellian governor of Kilkenny, a man who committed a number of highly questionable, if not psychopathic deeds in Ireland. But the evocation of the, the Axtell name even now surprised me, or perhaps it shouldn't have given Axtell's reputation as a man who allegedly proclaimed in the early stages of the Cromwellian conquest that if the Irish resisted, quote, the Lord by his power shall break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. At the bloody ground zero of Drada, <clears throat> Axtell enthusiastically directed his, his own assault. Later in the campaign, he was court-martialed by Ireton on the charge of, on, on the charge of ordering the killing uh, of hundreds of soldiers despite quarter being offered at Milik Island. And that was only the beginning considering the depravity that was to come in his capacity as Kilkenny's governor. According to a pamphlet entitled, The Murders and Massacres Committed on the Irish in Ireland Since the 23rd of October, 1641, and reprinted in part in Clarendon's History of the Rebellion and Civil Wars in Ireland, Axtell turned into a kind of Kilkenny Captain Kurtz, as he was reported to have sent the inhabitants of a village some miles from Kilkenny to Barbados, hanged 50 people in Thomaston Square, personally tortured one man in order to find out the location of a secret treasure, captured and hanged another despite the pro um, promise of safe conduct, um, ordered the deaths of 40 men, women, and children, commanded his troops to cluster other men and children together and kill as many as possible, and so on, and so on. There are many more to come after that. Years later, while awaiting execution in England for the crime of regicide, Axtell seemed to remember the town in turn. Quote, remember my love to all my Christian friends in Kilkenny, he told a friend, for now I am going to be their martyr. As for his enemies in Kilkenny, he added, it will be enough for them to know that my name was Axtell. Axtell is, is significant because he represents perhaps a more extreme example of those men who came to be known as Cromwellians or Oliver's men, Oliverians, Roundheads, Puritans, though Cromwellians stuck. To be a Cromwellian in Ireland was not only to be associated with the man one served, but given that Cromwell left Ireland in 1650 to take conquest and settlement in Ireland into new directions that could extend well beyond and occasionally conflict with the aims and policies of the man himself. John Cunningham, for example, has argued that one should really speak of an Ayrtonian rather than Cromwellian settlement of Ireland, for example. <clears throat> and of course, men such as Lord Broghill, Roger Boyle, Charles Coote, or Harold Inglesby would be would secure those holdings at the restoration. While Cromwell himself predominated in the social memory of villainy in Ireland, his underlings were also notably absent in it. Uh, were noticeably present in it, sorry, and were occasionally described in much harsher terms with regard to their actions. Yet with some exceptions, such as Patrick Little's biography of Broghill or David Farr on Henry Ireton, less attention has been paid to these men in and of themselves 
at least relative to Cromwell in Ireland. Ironically, or at least in the case of Coote, folklore can remember these men more than historiography sometimes does. This talk is a preliminary and necessarily partial exploration into the remembered, misremembered, silenced or forgotten afterlives of these underlings in Ireland, especially as those afterlives circulated in contemporary pamphlets, popular culture, later nationalist discourses, and folk memory. In this regard, I'm obviously inspired by the work of Guy Biner, and particularly his recent work on social forgetting and the more vernacular alternative and overlooked ways in which individuals rem were remembered through time. Folklore is especially important here, problematic as it is to trace before 1800. Yet folklore can be identified in popular histories, antiquarian and travel writings, newspapers and pam pamphlets of the pre-modern era, offering us important clues into different memorializations of these men and what they meant. In the case of the Axtell descriptions and murders and massacres, this material could seep and turn into oral culture and be claimed by it to be transmitted, transmitted in different variants in the centuries to come. I would like to go beyond Biner perhaps, however, in arguing that folklore should do more than illuminate how the past was memorialized. Folk narratives and the discipline of folkloristics uh, with its study of tradition, social groups, transmission, motifs, ecotypes, and patterns also reveal surprising discoveries if read in and of themselves. Finally, I'd like to make the case for folklore as conveying truths, even if the facts themselves are loosely applied. When one reads a number of references that Coote, for example, was, quote, a bloody, a bloodthirsty ruffin and just as bad, if not worse than Cromwell ever was, one begins to see a pattern emerging. Who then were these men and how are they remembered, especially worse than Cromwell? The term henchman tends to connote sinister musclemen who hover menacingly behind a crime boss, but Cromwellians as they came to be popularly understood and described could also encompass more than military commanders. Adventurers and merchants as described brilliantly in David Brown's recent book, Empire and Enterprise, could be referred to as Cromwellians, <clears throat> even if they did not even visit Ireland. Men such as William Petty or the High Court of Justice's John Cook could also fall under the term, Petty having the most lasting legacy in laying the basis for the land settlement. The term Cromwellian also became an adjective which to, in which to connote a, connote a utilitary regime of new men during a time when, as Yeats would later put it, Quote, the old individual poetical life went down as it seems forever. This was a little inaccurate on Yeats's part since the new men long preceded Cromwellians. He just finished the job. Just as the coarse names and behavior of the English had already been famously mocked by the Irish poets. But these poets also contributed to singling out the Cromwellians too. Eamon Unduna in a poem from 1658 described Cromwell's quote, raging gluttonous mob, the odorous remnants of churlish craftsmen descended from harlots, monsters and rebels of whom nobody in Europe knew what dog had excreted them, unquote. <laughs> One of the most offensive aspects of the Cromwellian troopers to the Gaelic poets and echo, echoing the second part of Parliament Clan Thomas was their lowborn status and leveling vulgarity. 
The poets themselves, on the other hand, were mandarins, which made the downfall of men such as Davio Bruder all the more bitter. Again, English rustics, the perception of them had preceded the Cromwellians. A few aspects, however, did distinguish the Cromwellians from their predecessors and ensured their remembrance across time. Many of them, for example, carried the direct stain of regicide with them. Axtell, of course, was a regicide, as was Peter Stubber, later mayor of Galway, who was later accused of executing King Charles himself with his own uh, axe. There's a plaque on the King's Head pub in Galway um, that states that the building was seized by Colonel P Peter Stubbers, uh, that thought to have been responsible for the beheading of Charles I of England in 1649. Miles Corbett, sent by Cromwell in 1653 as commissioner for the regulation of forfeited estates and remembered by William Montgomery for his malevolent e aspect and his evil eye, had been a, an eager regicide and was executed for it after he was captured as a fugitive during the restoration. John Cook was also regicidal responsible in his capacity as manager of the High Court of Justice and known for his zealotry against, quote, Satan's servants. Cook's actions in Ireland were in fact seen by the Mercurius Politicus of 1653 as an extension of what had been accomplished with the execution of Charles I. Describing the deaths of 23 men under Cook's orders, the newspaper quoted him as saying, these wretches which we cut off here with a sword of justice are but part of the tail that's of that serpent whose head we first lopped off in England. Not all Cromwellians, of course, were regicides, even though their service to an essentially regicidal Republican and then protectorate regime would render their actions somewhat suspicious or at least contribute to a reputation for treachery and social memory and folklore. Broghill, whose support Cromwell sought, given his prominence as a soldier politician and leading member of the Protestant community in Ireland, did not come over to Cromwell's side until later in 1649. After the restoration, Broghill's political acumen, well, acumen and skill brought him back to the King's favor and to a new title, the Earl of Orrery. Even so, he felt compelled for the rest of his life to, distis, to distance himself, not only fr from what he called the usurpation of Oliver Cromwell and quote, these last unhappy and unnatural troubles, but from any kind of regicidal association. All this, of course, allowed him to justify him, himself before the new king and to maintain a social and economic position, which, including land, which included land holdings in Ireland that he had gained in the previous decade. Yet Orrery's plays, Trifon the General, were also preoccupied, if not obsessed, with the issue of regicide and questions concerning the morality of serving a usurper, Cromwell, in the wake of this act. This quest to uphold the Orrery name, which coincided with the demonizations of, of Cromwell's, would also continue after the Earl's death with Orrery's chaplain, Thomas Morris, composing, composing the great man's authorized biography. Orrery, according to Morris, had been the king's loyal subject all along. If he had been involved with the Cromwellian experiment, it was due to, quote, strange providence mixed with public duty since Orrery, quote, had given his word to be faithful to Cromwell and it would have been dishonorable in him not to keep it. Morris's act of selective memory, really forgetting, 
appears to have succeeded since the Dictionary of National Biography from the 1890s follows the narrative that recounts Orrery's horror at Charles's death, as well as his reluctant participation in the Ireland campaign, as he, quote, realized that the royal cause was for the time hopeless, and therefore he devoted all his energies to make the rule of Cromwell a success, unquote. Many of the Cromwellian military personnel also gained contemporary notoriety by their, by their presence at Drada and Wexford. The Irish poet uh, Davi Kundin, for example, recounted the way in which, quote, Cromwell went his deadly way to let loose the power of the English rabble spreading havoc and slaughter through the land and Andrada released his bloody army to strike the women, the children, the men, and the troops, unquote. But other acts of outrage were reported in contemporary reports as well. And, and Michal write, wrote a very um, great article about kind of contemporary news about all of this. The anonymous aphorismical discovery of treasonable faction penned at some point between 1652 and 1660 described the roundheads burning Nuns Island near Galway where a community of poor Clares had resided and were now dispersed. There was a religious element to these tales, particularly as those stories were claimed to be based on contemporary witnesses and were transmitted to the continent by Catholic clergy. Um, in addition to targeting priests and nuns, other acts of violence and iconoclasm are described as well with one Jesuit report describing the occupation of Kilkenny where quote, Cromwell's soldiers remarkable for their impiety assembled in the marketplace armed with their muskets and directed many blows against the figure of the crucifixion, unquote. Yet these accounts differed from purely atrocity literature like um, John Temple's Irish Rebellion, for example, in that divine wrath could occasionally intervene to execute justice on the blasphemers. The Jesuit writer thus followed this trope when he added that after the Cromwellians had inflicted their damage in Kilkenny, quote, behold, the wrath of an avenging God quickly pursued the authors of the sacrilege as a mysterious malady seized on them and affected them so that none of them survived beyond a few days. The death by plague of Henry Ireton offers a more noteworthy example of this mode of narrative framing in which a suitably grim death comes to God's enemies. According to Catholic accounts, Ireton died, a rave, died raving in a frenzy eaten up by plague not a good death, in other words. Uh, but other, it's interesting, other explanatory frameworks were needed because, of course, many people died of the plague. So in other cases, the innocent Irish died of the plague because God's judgment was being inflicted on them, much as Yahweh had inflicted his judgment on the Israelites. In examining accounts of Ireton's death, Clodagh Tate has written, that, quote, in stories of divine vengeance, literary models, biblical folk, folk, biblical forerunners, and folkloric paradigms met and merged, adding in as well the patterns found in martyrologies, such as John Fox's Acts and Monuments, which recounted God's enemies spontaneously combusting, vomiting to death, or being picked apart by crows, and it gets more vivid than that, actually. Um, interestingly, later Catholic historians such as Dennis Murphy, who worked off earlier accounts, did not include the raving mad death of Ireton and in fact described the Lord Deputy as 
showing a degree of chivalry towards his opponents. Yet traces of the hideous death persisted in oral culture and still exists today at a historical walkthrough exhibit at King John's Castle in Limerick, or at least when I last visited there, which was um, five years ago, I think. Um, one encounters a set piece displaying uh, encounters a set piece display describing the siege of Limerick when Ireton suddenly appears as a kind of hologram, which emits sh curdling shrieks and then dissolves into a kind of pool of blood and then vanishes. But um, even as you move on through the exhibit, you move on to Sarsfield and others, you can still hear Ireton's shrieks down the, the hallway. This kind of bad death, of course, was offered in dialectical contrast to the miraculous wonder stories that accompanied the good deaths of saints. In other words, the Cromwellians and the associations that gathered around them always had a relational aspect to them as they could not exist without being defined against all they were not. This dichotomy would become more explicit in the 19th century and fit in well with the different nationalisms that emerged as Cromwellian, like the word Cromwell, assumed a more muscular rhetorical force in polemic, as Toby Bernard has reminded us. In Ireton's case, a variant of the story involves him being haunted on his deathbed by the memory of Terence Albert O'Brien, the Bishop of Emily, whose execution was attributed to his orders. Wrapped with guilt, afflicted with plague and frenzy again, Ireton, according to a contemporary report, proclaims that he had never been responsible for the prelate's death, quote, turning his face to the wall, privately muttering to himself, Ireton insisted that I never gave the aid of my counsel to the murder of that bishop, never, never, never. It was the council of war that did it, unquote. Amidst the scourges of conscience and with deep groans, the writer continued, Ireton del delivered up his soul to the lower regions, unquote. By contrast, a martyrology from 1658, 15, 1656, describes O'Brien in his last dying speech as stating that he died, quote, for the preservation of this poor church and her truth, peace and patrimony, and the settlement of this distracted and distressed people under their ancient laws and in their native liberties. So a very good martyr speech. The pairing of the Cromwellian villain with a saint or martyr would become evident with Broghill and the Bishop of Ross, Boethius McKeegan. In the Bishop of Ross, a poem written by R.R. Madden, the United Irishman historian, the verse describes how Broghill, the merciless, has come on a mission of murder, which pleases him well. But McKeegan, the, the, pre, the prelate, like Ambrose of old, forsakes not his flock when the spoiler is near. The poem then describes how Broghill orders McKeegan's death. The orders are given, the prisoner is led to the castle and round him are menacing hordes, undaunted approaching the walls at the head of the troopers of Cromwell. He utters these words, trust not the wiles of the serpent for perfidy skulks in its folds. Beware of Lord Broghill the day that he smiles, his mercy is murder, his word never holds. Though printed tales of the death of McKeegan by Broghill's orders had originated actually in Franciscan accounts on the continent, Broghill's name would probably be most memorialized through this poem and ballad as it would be reprinted in Thomas Davis's Nation, numerous 19th century folklore anthologies, 
and eventually find its way into the many oral histories of the National Folklore Collection in Dublin in the 1930s and beyond. Dennis Murphy too would dwell on it a bit in his history, contrasting the heroism of McKeegan with Broghill. Quote, Murphy, a true soldier would have honored such heroism even in an enemy, but not Broghill. Um, he, he wrote, you know, and that's this, this idea of perfidy and again, treachery is, is especially with Broghill and Coote is very common. The Bishop of Ross's embellishments could be considered a kind of misremembrance if one was adhering to strict factual accuracy, but it should not be discarded by historians for this reason, especially when popular ballads or tales are governed by different imperatives and convey other and often larger kinds of truth. It is also important to see misremembrance as one of the many different varieties of forgetting, which is not oppositional to memory, but something that exists on a spectrum with it and is manifested in a number of ways. Paul Connerton, for example, describes, he has a taxonomy of, of memories, uh, of forgetting, repressive erasure, prescriptive forgetting, forgetting that is constitutive in the formation of a new identity, um, the act of oblivion is, is probably uh, somewhere in those two areas. Um, but in any case, the, those moments of forgetting are also illuminating what, in other words, is being forgotten and why. In the case of the Cromwellians in Ireland, even the English appeared uncomfortable with the deeds, or at least they didn't want to speak about them. Uh, the journalist Henry Muddeman, Muddeman and parliamentary intelligencer of October 1660 had no problem describing the newly executed Daniel Axtell and his regicidal actions. As for his work in Ireland, Muddeman writes, quote, we will not mention what work that was for now he is dead. Axtell in this way appears to have been both selectively remembered in his regicide and selectively forgotten in his actions in Ireland. And you can speculate as to why, but um, it might, I don't know what it reflects. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say embarrassment on the part of the English. I don't know, maybe that could go to the comments. Um, another act of erasure occurred with Henry Jones, the Bishop of Meath and brother of Colonel Michael Jones who paved the way for Cromwell's invasion. Hun uh, Henry Jones, of course, was also noteworthy in the 1641 depositions as well as the Popish plot. I, I have a um, PhD student writing his dissertation on Henry Jones, Phelan Dolan. So just a plug for that. But in the restoration, uh, Jones would preach a number of sermons, including a famous Popish plot related one in 1679. In them, he would occasionally look back in general and describe, quote, that general calamity and deluge of evil overwhelming the whole kingdom in 1641, which Jones termed the Grand Rebellion. Yet Jones then had a tendency to leap past the Cromwellian years entirely to resume his different historical, to resume a historical narrative in 1660. Jones's black holing of the interregnum might have masked his own rather difficult past since those years witnessed him becoming scoutmaster general to Cromwell's army, becoming a Cromwellian in other words. This was bad enough for his fellow Church of Ireland clergy and members, but even less palatable was the task he had been um, given in that time to search for the concealed estates of bishops. For Jones, it was best not to remember, in other words. 
Others did recollect his sketchy history, however, with the Archbishop of Armagh, John Bramhall, forgiving him for these and other irregularities. Given that the Bishop of Meath was as instrumental as any man whatsoever in the restitution of all of us, um, the present state of Ireland, um, uh, of this part of Ireland is better for it, wrote Bramhall. James Ware in his later portrait of bishops also had to wrestle with the issue of Jones's actions during the Cromwellian period, though he simply stated that they were, quote, not so decent for one of his function. And he, of course, he didn't mention the Scoutmaster General and all of that. I know that my time is, is getting a little short, so I'm going to skip a little bit. I, um, I am going into, uh, I do go into Edmund Ludlow, um, Edward Ludlow a little bit. Um, and I think uh, I might skip over this section, but uh, suffice to say that he was pretty clear and unrepentant about, and, and this is Ludlow through the um, rewriting of, of, of John Toland, you know, Blair Warden gave a, a really brilliant kind of um, deconstruction of the memoirs there. Um, but I, I think for the sake of time, I'll, I'll skip over that. Um, Ludlow's mem memoirs were published at the end of the 17th century, just as Clarendon's history would keep the afterlives of the Cromwellians fresh into the next century. The Catholic historian John Curry described Ireton as a, quote, barbarous commander and wrote of the unspeakable cruelties of the Cromwellians generally. It, it should be pointed out that the Cromwellians and Cromwell were not always at the forefront of villainy, however. As Toby Bernard has pointed out, Ormond was the chief ogre of exiled bishops such as Nicholas French, and, and he sort of dominated. And of course, Protestants would remember 1641 and the Williamite deliverance more than Cromwell, who, who again was a very uncomfortable memory. But dominant historical figures or years should not efface the presence of others who circulated in the memorializing firmament as well. Cromwell and the Cromwellians, to, to quote Lecky, were eternally hated in Ireland and did not lay dormant in oblivion until the 19th century writers discovered them. In oral culture, John O'Donovan of the Ordnance Survey noted the locals he encountered attributed nearly every ruin in the landscape to the Cromwellians, while Humphrey O'Sullivan recounted a few tales related to their deeds. That said, Cromwellians certainly gained greater visibility in the 19th century in histories by Hardiman, Moran, uh, Moran and Prendergast, and contested as well by writers such as Froude. One should also mention the local historians such as, such as James Frost or Canon Patrick White masterfully explored in Nicholas Canny's forthcoming work entitled Imagining Ireland's Pasts. It was Canon White actually who attributed to Ludlow the famous statement um, in which uh, um, there was not an, in the burren, there was not enough water to drown a man, wood enough to hang him, nor earth enough to bury him, which would pervade the folklore in, in the decades to come. Um, Cromwell's wickedness was therefore useful to deploy in the polemical and nationalist media, just as it was disseminated further in popular literature and local archeological journals. The 19th century above all was the first era of the folklore anthology, even though folk tales again could be found in antiquarian and travel accounts of an earlier age. Thomas Crofton Croker, Patrick Kennedy, Lady Gregory, certainly Yeats, all heavily mediated the material they collected, omitting its scatological or often more overtly political references. 
While figures such as Croker have been too unfairly dismissed, as Clodagh Tate very correctly reminded me, their shaping of the tales they collected was nevertheless selective, constituting another instance of forgetting um, or effacing. One sees this in the, one sees these omissions when one compares the anthologies to the thousands of tales collected in the 1930s and the project initiated by the Irish Folklore Commission under the guidance of the great Seamus O'Dellarge. While one must take into account the time and place in which these tales were collected in the 1930s, they nevertheless serve as highly revealing documents reflective of a more alternative history. I'm not going to say hidden history. Um, but alternative history. Unlike in the 19th century anthologies, Cromwell appears here virtually hundreds of times. The Cromwellians do, or Cromwell appears hundreds of times in the guise of a king, a tramp, an omnipresent ghost, a figure out tricked by the locals. The massacres are actually mentioned, Drada and Wexford are actually mentioned relatively rarely. Much of the focus, the overwhelming focus is on land and its confiscation and its transference and its ruination, um, which might have reflected the elders, elder storytellers experience, for example, of the land wars or the Wyndham and other land acts. But to take such a view that it was suddenly, it just suddenly sprang up in the 1930s is to take much too limited uh, a view of the nature of folklore and its transmission over time. Uh, Cromwellians, more obscure Cromwellians appear in the tales especially, and I am going to, because of time, skip over, because I want to, um, and I, I then go into Wills and other, and the Bowens, but given the, the, the lack of time, I'll, I'll end my last few pages here. Um, the Coote family, um, Coote, Charles Coote is, well, the Coote family had itself been settled in Ireland since the late Elizabethan period, though Charles the Younger, Charles Coote the Younger, would benefit uh, by the Cromwellian regime by sitting on committees that adjudicated Catholic lands. These and other means allowed him to extensively increase his family's land holdings to close to 50,000 acres um, in 1660. By, in 1641, it had been around 18,000. Coote confirmed and added to these rewards, um, which the family memoirs describe as eminent services to the king upon the restoration. But this opportunistic pivoting would also be remembered in the folklore. Quote, they say Coote was a clever soldier, recounted one storyteller. He was so clever that when Cromwell was fighting for control in England, he went over to his side and deserted the crown. And when Cromwell lost sway in England, Coote went back to the royalists again, and they were glad to have him." Unquote. Regarding the territory of Beaumont, Beaumont Castle in County Cavan, quote, Coote got it and the whole estate, that was the reward Cromwell gave him and a good reward it was. But Coote played his card so well that when the King's party came into power again, they let him keep the property. There were generations of the Coots in Bellamont after that. Of all the Cromwellians, it is Coote who appears most frequently in the NFC records, which might've been due in part to much of the material being collected in Roscommon, Cavan and other places stamped with Coote's presence in some way. But I'm not so sure that his folkloric ubiquity was simply due to the collecting happenstance. In the 17th century, the aphorismical discovery accused Coote of giving Owen Roe O'Neill a subtle poison after he had offered him hospitality. 
uh, and then two centuries later, this would re be repeated by Dennis Murphy. Uh, Thomas Davis in his famous lament for the death of Owen Roe O'Neill doesn't make the reference to Coote, but others do. And in the 1820s, uh, James Hardiman presented a very detailed account of Coote's ruthless siege and capture of Galway during the Cromwellian campaign. Prendergast describes Coote as wasting Connacht like another Attila with fire and sword. Uh, Coote also appears in popular 19th century literature, including historical um, works such, um, such as those of Thomas Fitzpatrick, which describes one character as um, having that is saying that the, the curse of Cromwell is benediction itself compared with the curse of Coote, so far as the country west of the Shannon is concerned. Coote's one object in life is the extermination of the Irish, Irish race, but the subject is too harrowing. The ground, in other words, had been laid for Coote, which perhaps explains a truly rich and often inventive treasure of tales about him in the National Folklore Collection. Cromwell, in fact, is occasionally presented as, as having to hold Coote back. And then I, I, I mentioned a number of stories. Uh, Coote is annoyed by the chimney smoke that blows over a neighbor's house, so he orders the man's ancestral house to be tossed down. And some of these become very um, fanciful. Uh, Coote's death is described as being from his having tumbled from a horse and broken his neck while in pursuit of a priest. A neighbor hears the news and proceeds to pray for Coote's death, which soon follows. Uh, Coote actually died of smallpox, right? uh, which, which is bad enough. Um, uh, tour guides today at Trim Castle point out the bullet holes that his men um, shot into the walls. But what's interesting too um, is that Coote belongs to a larger, you could say, Cootean family, a, a Cootean family memory scheme because his father, Coote Sr., was also, who was also fairly sociopathic, gathered many tales around his own deeds, which migrated into the folklore. In the 19th century, the Coote landlord in Cavan was described as feeding a diseased pig, uh, feeding a diseased pig or bacon to his tenants, um, telling one of them after the truth was revealed that you needn't fear fire, you needn't fear the devil for fire and salt will kill, will kill it. And, and the man went mad according to the folklore. So coot landlords were also involved according to the lore with super conversions and other things during the famine. One servant was said to have burned down uh, Castle Cuff Castle for he hated coot as did many of his neighbors. Coot was a cruel landlord. So true as these stories might've been or not, they reflect the manner in which the coot name became latched in the oral culture to different historical episodes, Confederate wars, Cromwellian early restoration, Ireland famine and landlordism. In this way, coot, the name haunts the archive crossing generations. So um, to conclude a good book, a very good book, a group biography could be written on the more noteworthy Cromwellians including their relations with each other and with Cromwell. But I also believe that while they certainly should be held responsible for their actions in Ireland, the Cromwellians were simply exploiting a system that made those actions possible. This is not to excuse the wiliness and brutality in which many of them acted, but a purely bio biographical treatment serves to foreground individuals at the expense of the underlying structural forces that condition the decisions they made and provided opportunities which they could exploit in turn. 
And Cromwell, while he was preceded by decades of colonialist governance and could occasionally be a moderate influence against the men who acted in his name, at the very least represented the system and allowed its continuance in a settlement that was finalized under William. Any good biography should therefore connect these men or the memory and forgetting of them to these deeper structures, material, economic, um, financial, good, a good social, a good model of such an approach is Cora Glenahan's great book on Richard Talbot, and again, David Brown's book on the adventurers, which brings in biography. So that said, one might end with a postscript on, a postscript on what happened to these Cromwellians. Coote and Broghill, of course, landed on their feet. Sir John Reynolds, who distinguished himself as an excellent field commander and received lands, was not able to enjoy them uh, in the end since he was lost at sea in 1657. Axtell Corbin and John Cook were of course executed as regicides, though Axtell's son ended up emigrating to South Carolina, not out of shame, but economic opportunity. His descendants um, made a deep mark on South Carolinian history and claim Axtell the regicide proudly. And, and Matthew Jenkinson in his, his great recent book on um, the escape of two regicides to New England talks about there, there was a lot of sympathy for um, harboring and, and bragging about having regicidal um, connections. And on the other hand, John Hewitson protested in his 1901 memoirs um, that there has exists, uh, there exists for 200 years a false impression that the ancient family of Hewitson or Hewson numbers among its ancestors, Colonel John Hewson the Cromwellian. Um, it's no wonder he really wouldn't want that connection because Hewson, Hewson had a rather, um, deranged reputation as, as a presider over the courts marshal and a governor of Dublin. He called himself the child of wrath. Dennis Murphy called Hewson a, a one-eyed cobbler who from a mender of old shoes became a reformer of government and religion, unquote. Even today, faint traces of remembering and forgetting and discomfort remain. In a recent great book, Different and the Same, A Folk History of the Protestants of Independent Ireland, Deirdre Nuttall recounts one of her subjects describing a school in Dublin, which was founded by a Cromwellian and which later had pictures of King Billy on its walls. But now, according to her, her informant, quote, they have the 1916 proclamation written up with Porig Pierce on all the walls. In short, nobody, Nuttall writes, wants to recognize the historical fact that this school came into existence because of Cromwellians. Another subject describes how her ancestor came with Cromwell and quote, was given land. Not proud of this, obviously. On the other hand, memory and forgetting could split along public and private lines. Public forgetting, private remembering. As another Cromwellian descendant put it to Nuttall, quote, my father was a great champion of Cromwell, though he quick though he quickly added, but we, he would not have been broadcasting that. So thank you. Okay, well, thank you so I was much. Gonna leave, I was gonna leave that. I couldn't get my camera back on. So thank, thank you so much. That was a, a really magnificent paper uh, and, and covered such a wide range, not only of, of individuals and these Cromwellians, but uh, so many other issues that arise from it. I mean, the one that struck me almost there was at the very beginning of your talk where you say that folklore conveys truth, even if it 
How was you? Did you put it if it uh, deals, uh, even if the facts are loosely applied? That would be a great essay question or exam question. I mean, where would you go with that? Uh, what do we mean by truth? Um, so there's, well, there's, there's the old let, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> But, so yeah, it's a little kind of. <laughs> but uh, Lisa, I, I mean, there's so many questions I'd like to ask. Well, I'll just take a privilege as chair just to ask the opening question. As said, then um, please um, to the audience by please send in your questions, uh, and I'll um, uh, ask them of uh, Sarah. You can use the Q and A function um, on your computer there for the Zoom. So Sarah, just one of the things that kind of struck me, and again, you mentioned the very beginning there about how important to some degree folklore is in Irish uh, historical tradition. Just from your own reading, is there something peculiar or unique about the Irish folklore tradition, or is it very much of a, you know, pattern within Europe? Is there, you know, is it is it very similar, or is there something distinctive about it? I'm wondering from your own work and readings to date. Um, yeah, that's a great, I mean, I, I um you know, I again, as I said, I, I thought very naively that I, I would write a, a something on the, the folklore across the four nations, three kingdoms. And when I dug into the archives and, and they, they can, a lot of the, rec, um, if you go to duchis.ie, a lot of them are there, but not all of the stories, but there was something very unique about the stories that were coming out of Ireland and they're attached um, as, as folklore is to a, a universal motif system. And, you know, when you see Cromwell um, acting as a king of Ireland who goes back to England and comes back to conquer it, that's, that's a motif, that's a narrative um, trope. Um, or cobblers, you know, the story of cobblers. So it is attached to the universal and the global, but it's also intensely local. And, and so I think, um, what struck me, um, and you have, you have, of course, you have migrating folkloric stories. I mean, in, in uh, England, you have a lot of stories about the hoof prints of Cromwell's horses in the, on the floors of churches. And, but in Ireland, you don't, in, in England and in Scotland, you don't have this massive number of stories about land and property. And, and that's what struck me. And that, that made it kind of very, uh, very distinct. Um, the Irish folklore, you just don't have that <clears throat> for obvious historical reasons. So it's this obsessive quality. And of course, a lot of it, as I said, could be related to, you know, it was a very hot issue, um, you know, um, but I think this goes back much, it does go back much farther, I've traced it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that made it extremely distinct. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose I, I'd love to have a further chat with you about that. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But thank you. And I just see there's some questions coming in now, so I'm just going to start going through some of these, Sarah, um, uh, and then I might come back myself with a, a second question. But the the first question is there, and I think somebody trying to perhaps uh, relating to more recent controversies by saying, "What is your view on statues?" She says, I remember being appalled when I came across a huge statue of Cromwell in a park in Geneva and went off to the mayor's office to see if they were aware of who Cromwell was. They were. Uh, for them, he was defender of the faith. So, I mean, given that we're obviously discussing statues a lot at the moment, and uh, there's a, a, a lot of controversy about them, uh, particularly in, in uh, England, but also in the US, what, what's your view on that? I'm curious that's if there up? are in Ireland anymore. You know, I know what happened to your Nelson statue, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I, <laughs> Most of them are up at this stage. <laughs> it's what, yeah. Um, Oh gosh, I don't want, I could get into a lot of trouble. I, I don't know about Ireland, like here, um, 
I have, I, yeah, there, there is a lot of, uh, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I teach, um, an undergraduate course in his, this, a survey history of Britain and we're doing modern Britain. And we, I just talked about Cecil Rhodes and they're all trying to get rid of him. And, and, um, I'm kind of in favor of that, but it's, it's a history of Britain, by the way, where all the students are coming to become, coming to be total Anglophobes, like they're all saying how, how much they, I'm, I'm sorry, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, you know, here it's, it's Robert E. Lee and Southern monuments, although in New York, there's a lot of call, there's a call for the Columbus statue, Christopher Columbus to be taken down. Um, I, I I, I don't know. I mean, a part of me um, is is in favor of it for, I mean, I certainly, the Confederate flag flew for many years in the South and I was certainly in favor of taking that down. Okay. But, um, part of me, the historian in me, I don't know, it, it's it's some, I, I, I wish I could give a more articulate answer. I guess my answer is that I'm ambivalent. It depends who it is. Like Cecil Rhodes, I have no problem him coming down. But for you're, some you're, reason, you're not, not going to come down out of the way on Cromwell, obviously. Oh, should oh oh you mean the Westminster Cromwell? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, oh that's a, that's a really unfair. What do you think? What do you no, think? I, I I really don't care who they have outside our parliament in Westminster. It's none, none of my business. I'm an Irish citizen. Not not nothing to do with the UK. So it doesn't bother me either way. So I should say that I'm an American citizen. <laughs> <laughs> I have another um, question here um, about another. Part of me does kind of like that, you know, just because I'm, I'm, I don't know who's on this board, how many, but I, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm not a monarchist, and so I kind of like that he's there to remind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I have, I have to be careful with that. <laughs> well, I have another question about another rather notorious figure, but uh, the, the question is, what about Inchiquin? Do you regard him as a Cromwellian? That's a good question. I don't know if Porrick Lenahan's here. I don't know if you've, I don't know. What do you think? No, I wouldn't see him as a Cromwellian at no, all. No, I don't really. Know, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a very um, unusual character in lots of ways, but I wouldn't see him as a Cromwellian myself. Yeah. But I don't but know Brock what's Hill, I definitely do, you know, like he, he really was all in, but Inchiquin is funny. Yeah. But that, that could be, a, that could be kind of an interesting side piece and an article someone wants to write is like his, his identity in relation to all of this, you know, it's a good question. Uh, and I, I see a question from Mark Gable here. Oh, uh, Mark. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for a great talk. Um, how important are early 19th century figures such as H.O. Uh, Sullivan, Aulig O'Sullivan, and Crofton Croker as mediators between the oral tradition and 19th century literary culture? Well, Crofton Croker especially is incredibly influential in it. Uh, Humphrey O'Sullivan, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure he wasn't as influential as, as Croker. Um, a lot of people and Clota Tate and I had a conversation about this that Croker is controversial because, you know, he, he kind of presents folklore as quaint, the quaint tales and, and a lot of people don't like that, but he, he was kind of the first to really um, be wildly popular in it. So he had an enormous effect on, on the literature and to come and, and he, he really influenced that. Um, I think probably more than anybody. Um, but O'Sullivan too was was uh, and, and O'Sullivan I like because he he I like him more than Croker um, Crofton Croker because he he was 
I recommend everyone read him. There should be an edition of his work. It's, and, and actually it was Mark who referred me to him long ago to read him. And it was, it was gold um, to read him. And, and just, I suppose, maybe following so, on from that, Sarah, a little bit, I mean, you know, to what extent what, for what we have today and what's in the folklore archive in UCD is, is really a 19th century construct in terms of how it is being articulated and written about. I'm not saying that these traditions aren't longer and uh, yeah. go back much further, but in a sense, are, are we really dealing with a, a 19th century creation in that sense, in terms of how they're being articulated? I, th I think we are in a, on a on a formalistic way too, and I, I think you know that there was this and, and again I'm not a folklorist you know but I, I think there there was a sort of very kind of positivist classificatory scheme placed around folklore and motifs and fitting them all into this kind of late 19th early 20th century structure and I think that has also shaped how we understand folklore and um and so I think that's that's really a, an amazing question and I, I think I need to grapple with that more because it's so much more about just stories and um and, and also the, the the folklore that we've gotten remember folklore is is it it's dead when we read it when we, even when we read it in at the UCD archives it's folklore is performative it comes alive in the telling and, and so it's it's very inaccessible to us. And in the 19th century mediations, it very much is, um, it is a 19th century construct and thematically because they're leaving a lot of things out. Uh, and, and that's their prerogative to do so. I, um, they, you know, they, it wasn't up to Yates or Lady Gregory to present everything. They were, um, but they are shaping it very heavily and, and very much in a 19th century language as well. And, sorry, I just, um, uh, one of the things I just read recently from yourself, uh, Sarah, that you were saying that Cromwell will live on in history in a sense that he's still obviously a, a figure of great interest to academic historians, but you were wondering whether uh, Cromwell in memory will, will die out to a certain degree uh, and our connection with that is disappearing is that is that something you feel that 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 memory the memorialization of Cromwell Cromwell in memory is 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 slowly or gradually dying away well I, I think um you know and of course I I can't I can't speak for all of you you all you know more but it just anecdotally and and more than anecdotally I found that younger people um are not as aware of him or or if they are it's it's not as a villainous thing and one thing i kind of say in in the conclusion of my book is that there was in, in the 80s and 90s there there was still a lot of reference to cromwell in in music and you know in the pogues and elvis costello and and um you know everywhere it was it was um it was everywhere and i i think because that generation grew up in you know, with hunger strikes and and with with Bloody Sunday and and so I think there was this not in the north though in the north you didn't have mention of Cromwell in popular songs um, popular bands like the Undertones or something they that very pointedly was left out and I, I think my I'm, it's kind of a thesis that that was sort of the last upsurge when young people really had Cromwell sort of in the discourse. Um, uh, among themselves, and they would listen to a song mentioning "A Curse Upon You," Oliver Cromwell, and 
and um, my dog doesn't like Cromwell, but uh, <laughs> and and you know, but today I I don't know. I found just the a lot of the younger people I've I've encountered, and I've encountered quite a few, and I mean like thirty five and under. They don't really know him that well or care, um, <laughs> or uh, yeah. But I, I again, it would be too um, impertinent of me to speak for you know. Um, but you don't, you know, obviously people are still fascinated by him and your book was, was a huge success. And, but I'm just talking kind of in the memory, the conversations of, of younger people. I don't hear it. Okay. And yeah. just a follow-up question from Mark and just to the rest of the audience, just if there's any final question, if you could get them in because we're, we're going to unfortunately have to, to finish up soon. So, but the, the follow-up question from Mark is, I suppose a broader question um, uh, about the sources that you have used so effectively, Sarah, uh, not only the talk today, but in your, your ongoing work as well. And he said that historians tend to be wary of folklore as a historical source. Do you think there's much scope for early modernists to yield valuable insights from folklore as, as you yourself really have done of late? Yeah, I, uh, but you know, I, think, I think the best one working today is Clodagh Tate. I think she's brilliant in her use of folklore. And, and unlike me, she was trained in part in folklore. And I think that um, Mark Cable himself has used folklore concepts like, um, you know, Karl von Sydow's oikotype idea. So I think, um, you know, in, in working in orality, for example, I think you can pick folklore. And if you get to know the structures and learn folkloristics, it's an incredibly interesting field. Um, then you can start to identify folkloric elements in different works, even the most elite works, you can see it. Um, you know, so I, I think it's obviously very hard to trace it and you have to be very careful if you're going. And, but I think Peter um, Burke and Guy Biner, although Guy Biner is, um, you know, he's 1798. So he's kind of a little more fortunate than those of us who go earlier um, where it's, it is kind of more difficult to track down. But I do think what you said, like even calling it folklore, that word wasn't even invented until 1846. So the word itself and the concepts which followed are kind of modern. So I, I, I think that there could be a lot more um, discussion about it. And I think those those UCD, I, I just duchess.ie, but also going to the National Folklore Archives collection, I, I think it's it's so enriching. Um, and it's, it's not just Cromwell, it's so many, Elizabeth shows up quite a bit in those um, those records, and so yeah, that's not a very good answer, but um, oh, no, but I think you. it needs to be thought out more. I've written about this, and Cloda has, and but I think I think it could go much farther um, and represent a really new direction. Um, in the field. Well, I think, as you say, with 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 Guy Viner and and Cloda and, and yourself, uh, Sarah, I think you've you've given uh, a great sort of pathway for for which many I hope will follow in terms of the richness of these sources and what we can do with them. And what I really like from your own work as well, from Guy, is as I said, it was more uh, as well not just the the history of remembering but of forgetting as well, which I think is a very powerful uh, uh, concept. Uh, and yeah. one that we can use very fruitfully. So, uh, you know, I think there's there's plenty more can be done. There's a few other comments there, Guy, but I, I'm afraid we're running out of time. So I just want to, before people go, just remind you that next week is, is the final seminar of our series. Um, uh, and we're going to have uh, Professor Martin Dehart from the Huygens uh, Institute in The Hague, who is a great supporter of Trinity, did our master's here 
uh, and has been involved in a number of projects here more recently. Uh, and she's giving a talk on the limits uh, of Napoleon's powers, the resilience of Dutch overseas trade networks during the continental system. So that is our final talk uh, of uh, the uh, academic year, actually the semester of the academic year. Um, so we hope that um, many of you will be able to join us at the same time next week, uh, four o'clock on Monday for that. Uh, and thanks again to the hub, as I said, for uh, accommodating with all this and, and doing all the technical side of things. But before we uh, formally conclude, I have to uh, once again uh, just give my thanks to uh, Professor Covington for a really magnificent talk um, and one that, as I said, just raises so many fascinating, wonderful uh, and exciting questions uh, about a topic that which we're so familiar with for so many centuries and yet we're now finding new and interesting ways to uh, approach it, explore it uh, uh, and, as I said, I think will lead to, to lots of new and interesting work. Uh, building upon it. So thank you so much for that, Sarah. We're very, very grateful for you taking the time uh, to do that and joining us um, from New York today. Uh, and thank you to all uh, our listeners for, for coming with us uh, as well. Uh, and we look forward to say perhaps to joining with you again next week. So until then, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.